0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health
1: perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Sanchez Johnson. Lisa is an academic leader in the area of health equity and multicultural and Latinx health with 30 years of experience conducting research and clinical work with Latinx and Black populations and other ethnic minorities in the area of culturally competent behavioral health and health assessments and interventions. Lisa is an associate professor and the vice chair of research in the Department of Family Medicine at Rush Medical College at Rush University Medical Center. She is also core faculty and director of integrated behavioral health and wellness DEI, and research in the Rush Esperanza Family Medicine Residency Program, as well as an associate professor in the psychology department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In 2008, Lisa received the Distinguished Professional Early Career Award from the National Latino Psychological Association based on her research, her teaching, her clinical practice, service, and mentorship as it relates to Latino health. Today, we're going to be talking with Lisa about the Latinx community and culturally-centered assessment. Lisa, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here, and honor, really enjoyed listening to your show, so thank you for inviting me.
1: Nice to have you as our guest today. You know, hey, as we get started, we're talking about this population, the Latinx population, specifically based off of your research and also the ways that you come at a culturally-centered assessment in your treatment and work with these folks. But I'd like to have our listeners just start with having an understanding of your own cultural heritage and kind of the background in that area.
2: Sure. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to share. So my background is that I was born and raised in Hawaii, and with that background, I sort of carry that into my interest in research and clinical work. So I am Puerto Rican and German descent, and being from Hawaii, I grew up in a very multicultural, multiracial population. And, you know, I, I knew that I always wanted to be a psychologist from a very young age. People would come to me with their problems. <laughs> I was in grade school and older people would come to me. I, I don't know, perhaps I was a good listener. But honestly, I I just love people. I love talking mm-hmm. to people, being with people. And that kind of brought me into the behavioral science the realm of things in terms of psychology. And then also, mm-hmm. I, I should say, growing up, I was heavily involved in science fairs from a young age. And so from going to the state science fair, you know, from everything from studying the growth of a lizard's tail to child abuse. And so when it became time to choose a career, uh, clinical psychology and the scientific practice of clinical psychology was what attracted me the most.
1: You and I both have an appreciation practicing in Hawaii. You grew up there. I've been there almost 40 years. And we have this appreciation, I think, just in general about the cultural diversity that we get to be a part of. I've raised three kids there and it may not be a a very favorable thing today to say, but my kids I know who are in different parts of the United States right now don't tend to see color. And meaning the idea around that is there's such an acceptance of diversity, there's inclusion, and there's an appreciation for the equity piece of things. And it's such a wonderful place to grow up. So you've got this upbringing in Hawaii, you've got this very early exposure, people coming to see you as Dr. Lisa, probably even in the third grade. And then you got this <laughs> research interest that starts with lizards and then begins to kind of expand <laughs> yes. some into the mental health field. So you're taking this early set of experiences yeah, that are pretty rich, and you're beginning to go into this professional realm with an interest and then a clinical practice in working with a specific population. Tell me a little bit about some of how you got into the professional side of this as a doc.
2: Sure. So in terms of graduate school, so I, yeah, so I I went to graduate school in Chicago. And honestly, I was looking to go to a city that had a multicultural population. And mm-hmm. so that's why I ultimately selected Chicago, although at the same time, Chicago is very different from where I was growing up
0: mm-hmm. because
2: Hawaii, is, you know, it's it's very integrated in, in terms of the race and ethnic background. And in yeah. Chicago, it, it is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. So I knew that kind of coming in, but I still wanted to be in a city with a, a rich, diverse background of Mm -hmm. individuals. So I got my PhD at the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. I did my clinical psychology internship with health psychology specialization at the University of Chicago, and then did my postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University.
1: So So as you take all these things and you begin to come into this field around research, I want to start with kind of a little bit of a kind of a cornerstone. In terms of ways that we reference This population, we've heard different words being used to reference this community, Hispanic, Mexican, now Latinx. As we start out, would you kind of clarify for us what we're going to be using and why and kind of the origin of how it came into Latinx now and how it's being used so profusely?
2: Yes. Thank you so much for asking that question, because people do use those terms interchangeably and, and there's confusion sometimes around that. So the word Hispanic, that's the one that was coined, I guess, used first in the 1980 census. So it's a kind of a made up term by the U.S. government and to refer to everybody that had, they could trace their origins to Spain or the Iberian Peninsula, which is now Spain. And whereas the word Latino tended to be more used on the West Coast, a more of a progressive term at that point mm-hmm. many years ago, the controversy around the two terms is that some people feel that The word Hispanic only refers to those from Spanish-speaking countries, which it does, but it can exclude certain other groups like individuals who are from Brazil, even though they're in Latin America. Mm, It's the largest country, but it would actually exclude them. Whereas the word Latino, having that background of individuals who come also from Latin America, it would be inclusive of them. And then the term Latinx is a more contemporary term. Mm-hmm. It's hard to trace exactly when it first appeared, but actually Google Trends traces it to the 2004 when it was first used online to describe people of Latino heritage or Hispanic heritage, but used in a, uh, to refer to a non-gendered use of the word because spanish in general is a very gendered language mm-hmm. so the word o is for masculine a is for right. feminine and o tends to be also inclusive of, of both groups but some people did not like that it felt that it was still a uh, male oriented so to be more inclusive the word latinx has come into favor really um, yeah i should say though that I wouldn't necessarily go around calling people next if you had a, a patient. I, I would say that is as one recommendation is because according to the Pew Research Center, actually 76% of Latinos haven't even heard of that word. So it tends to be a little bit more in the academic realm that people use really? that word. Yes. And even 20% say that they they don't use the word and only 3% of Latinos or Latinx populations say that they use it. So I would be sensitive about that if you're working in a clinical or research context. The message there is just to, to ask people how they would like to define themselves and you had mentioned also another subpopulation, which was Mexicans. And honestly, that—that that is, you know, one of the best recommendations is to use the words that they prefer, and also to respect and understand the, the subgroup difference. So, if they say they're Mexican, then I wouldn't reflect back and say, "Also, oh, you said you were Latino," because right. they said that they would describe themselves as Mexican.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that piece. We're going to come and talk a little bit later on. I know you do supervision. I know you do some teaching, mentorship and some ways that you use a culturally sensitive approach as you're helping folks work with this population, as we as we should as mental health practitioners with any population that we're seeing, regardless of their color, cultural heritage, even within group differences, not just making a general assumption. But let me flag that if I could to come back to that piece. Okay. You know, as you're talking about uh, this population, we're going to refer to it now as those with Latinx descent, if we could. From your research and, and the work you've done for many, many years, What are some of the unique behavioral health and medical issues that you're seeing being experienced within this community?
2: Yeah, you know, I would say, um, certainly they have health issues and mental health issues that are common um, among many other groups, not just unique Mm -hmm. to Latinos. But the the number one thing that I say, because I think it's so prevalent among uh, many populations is, is weight issues, so obesity in particular. Hispanic or Latino, Latinx, having very high rates of obesity. And a lot of this data just on Hispanic Latinos in general comes from what is called the Hispanic Community Health Study, study of Latinos. So this is the largest epidemiological study of Latinos in the United States. So data was collected on individuals from Miami, Florida, the Bronx, New York, San Diego, and Chicago. So Chicago's a big hub again for that. So right. a lot of this research that we know comes from those large-scale studies. And what was significant about that study is even when you look at obesity, there are subpopulation differences. And that's the mm. richness of studying Latinos is that you can decide to specialize in one group over the other, right? Or inclusive as well. So Puerto Ricans, for example, having really high rates of obesity, at 40.9% among Puerto Rican men, and 51.4% among Puerto Rican women. Whereas if you if you were only studying Puerto Ricans, you would think that maybe all Latinos had that high rate of obesity, when in fact, South Americans have a much lower rate of obesity. So again, it's important to kind of keep those subpopulation differences in mind. There's also high rates of diabetes in this population. So some of those are health issues.
1: From a, from a practitioner's standpoint, then you're saying in terms of depression, anxiety, we could say maybe across groups and across, uh, you know, cultural pieces, maybe it's somewhat similar for the most part, but you're saying some of the medical health-related issues are noteworthy. In terms of some of the explanatory factors, not, not so much within, within the group differences, but just the group as a whole, how have you come to understand some of the health medical related issues with the obesity, with the diabetes, which is a significant thing With obesity comes heart related issues, cholesterol, et cetera. What's some of the explanatory factors do you find?
2: Yes, with something like obesity, right? For the most part, even though the the solution for obesity is multifactorial, right? Mm -hmm. But we know it's strongly related to diet and physical activity. And, you know, they can have metabolic syndrome or there's there could be also metabolic issues related to obesity. So those are the those can be the same. But honestly, I I do feel that there is a lot of research supports that there's more marketing targeted to these groups. And so that can contribute a lot to what's happening in their communities. It's unfortunate, but there is a lot of money spent on, I guess, targeting those populations. So they're not eating as healthy as as maybe some other groups.
1: I get it. I think that's an important piece because these are there are things that can be done around that. And, and I think that's important for practitioners to understand as well. I know that you've gained national recognition for your research with Latinx communities. And in, in your areas of research, what have you been most excited about and oh, yeah. uh, been most kind of maybe proud of, if you will?
2: So I guess to answer that, because there's a lot of things I'm I feel very happy and and honored to have been participated in. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is my research investigating cultural variables underlying race and ethnicity as it relates to diet, physical activity, and body image. So what I tend to study is the role of acculturation. acculturation. So acculturation is when somebody adopts the attitudes, norms, and expectancies of the whole society, which in this case would be mainstream United States. I also study acculturative stress, which is the stress due to the acculturation process, ethnic identity, and cultural values and biculturalism. So I think that our line of research is unique and it's exciting to me because I i call it like basic research in cultural variables as it relates to some of these other factors, these either diet and even mental health issues that we are beginning to investigate as well.
1: I'd like to and- mine down just a little bit more on those if I could, because you're talking now about ways that or in things that we could keep in mind from your research and your clinical perspective that can be very helpful for, for practitioners, both listening to this podcast, but also maybe in their working with this population. Let's go down just a wee bit more. You're talking about from your research and what you're most excited about and, and expert at, these are your kind of Latinx worldviews, the cultural values and gender roles. Let, let's, let's start there if we could. So Latinx mm-hmm. worldviews, their cultural values and gender roles. Give me just a kind of little pithy parts in each of those three.
2: Sure. So, some cultural values. One of the cultural values that is, is key to understanding the Latinx population is the role of family or familismo. So, mm-hmm. this is an emphasis and the importance of intermediate and extended family members who could be related that. or or not related. And, you know, you, you see this also in terms of the interdependence among each mm-hmm. other and, and kind of valuing that as being a strength. Another key cultural value to understand when you're working with Latinos is the role of, it's called simpatia, or also it's technically the word for sympathy. And this mm-hmm. is the idea that Hispanic or Latinx populations prefer smooth, positive relationships. Now, this is not a, a we don't want to, we want to be careful not to stereotype individuals. So I'm speaking in general, and certainly there are other groups that have similar characteristics, but I'm saying that you, when you talk about Latinos, you can't not talk about Uh, the role of family or uh, the desire to prefer smooth, positive uh, social relationships. Also, there's a a concept of personalismo, and this is a a key variable, key construct to keep in mind in terms of uh, valuing personal relationships. So Mm -hmm. in a clinical setting, for example, you would want to be a little bit more personal with individuals. So for example, if you were walking with them to your office, you might say to them, a personal question for example, asking about their family, how's how's your family doing versus speaking about something in general, like how was parking today? You see, so you're focusing more on the the personal aspects of things. And then you brought up a a good question about those gender roles. So that's also critical for Latino families and individuals. So there is this concept that you and probably many other people have heard of called machismo. It comes from the word macho. And so we all have this stereotype already of, of what you may think i'm going to talk about right of this certain individual or, or a, a manly characteristic in general so in i want to say that in latino culture this is an idea that is a culturally prescribed way for a man to behave this person is able to be in control and take care of his family it's a, a sense of honor and obligation to their family it's in the in the positive sense of the word that's what that means um, also, there's a counterpart to that that traditionally much attention has not been paid to it, which is called medianismo. And that is a culturally prescribed way for a woman to behave. Mm-hmm. And that word comes from the word Mary or Virgin Mary in the in the Catholic tradition. And this is the idea that a person is maybe self-sacrificing, that she's willing to give up her own needs and, and, and put those second and put mm-hmm. her family first. And it comes from, again, some maybe religious undertones there that you can kind of mm-hmm. pick up. And so in therapy, in terms of gender roles, what I try to do and what other people are are beginning to do as well is to work within those cultural values. We don't want to necessarily change anybody's value. I think that that would be disrespectful. And respect is also a key component in Latino culture. So we want to work with their cultural values and help them to interpret it in a new sort of a way yes. in terms of a situation. So for example, with medianismo, if I was helping somebody to lose weight and become engage in healthier behaviors, I might encourage them to, to see how coming to their appointments or coming to a research study is actually helping their family. See, so I'm not, I'm, I'm building upon that role of the family and how, you know, by doing that, they are actually also helping their family as well.
1: We'll be right back after word from
0: our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community.
1: I really like that. I think what you're describing in those two terms is the best parts of those two terms and how maybe in a marriage those work and have the ability to work very synergistically together, very complementary together. And sometimes I think those terms, you're right. When you start out, you said, you may not anticipate where I'm going with any explanation of this, but I love the beauty of what you're sharing there. This is somebody, a man on his side who takes you know responsibility for his family, who loves his family tenderly and takes that kind of that very strong stance that I think is the best of a man. And then the, the woman complimenting him with her stance and how she comes in the family in a very caretaking, heart-driven way as well. I really appreciate that. You were talking earlier about how we can take a group, but wanting not necessarily to kind of judge a group just by, you know, just the the, the box that they check, but the importance of within group differences, particularly you mentioned two things, acculturation and immigration. Can you talk about some of the within group differences with those two factors, acculturation and immigration?
2: Yes. One of the things is, that again, acculturation is adopting the attitudes, norms, and expectancies of the whole society. So if we don't pay attention to somebody's level of acculturation, first of all, we won't accurately describe the individual, right? So acculturation is not just the language that they speak. Are they speaking English? It can be also what kind of music they listen to, what kind of food that they eat. There's actually, for example, a dietary acculturation measure that somebody can give that's just more specific to diet, but then there's also broader measures of acculturation. And acculturation, I, I should mention, for people who are doing research, sometimes acculturation measures will say the word acculturation is an acculturation measure for Hispanic, Latino, but it may not actually be measuring acculturation. It may be measuring something else called ethnic identity. And ethnic mm-hmm. identity is your thoughts and feelings about your ethnic group. Yes. Now you yeah. can be more ethnically identified Mm-hmm. As a Latino, for example, myself, I identify more as a Latino or Latina female, Latinx female, but my acculturation level, which is a different within group variable, can be still very high. Sure. So they, people consider them orthogonal constructs. So you can be high on one, low on the other. So that's an example of and within group difference, and also immigration. That's an important construct. Yeah. Again, not all Latinos are immigrants. The majority are not. They were born in the United States. It's a stereotype that individuals have, but you know, there may be health concerns that are place people at greater risk, depending on whether or not they were born in the U.S. or how long they've been in the U.S. And again, I I mentioned a little bit earlier, some of the factors that may play into that. I said like diet and physical activity, the marketing also. So in this field and in clinically, we really do want to pay attention to those within group differences, even just like age and disability status, where they grew up. So it's not just that I'm working with a Hispanic or Latinx individual. I'm also paying attention to those intersections and intersectionality is a a very important construct for people to pay attention to as well.
1: You know what I love about that emphasis, too, is that I think oftentimes people come into therapy and it's usually, you know, some issue or problem driven thing. But I think one of the things we get to do as practitioners is we get to not only just address a thing, you know, the pain, if you will, and the thing that's bringing them in, that's the presenting problem. But we get to kind of shade in and develop with them a greater appreciation for who they are, not just... as a person with a problem, but who they are within the context of their family, maybe within their community, maybe within their cultural heritage. And there's something about that contextual appreciation, I think that begins to have someone kind of pause and say, man, there's a lot to me, isn't there? Or maybe there's parts of me that I hadn't considered before, maybe about the acculturation piece, maybe about the immigration piece, Maybe some terms I've used like, uh, m- you know, macho or machismo before that I kind of didn't even really even understand within my own cultural heritage that when you put it in that way, now I, now I want to aspire to something here that reframes it for me in a, in a really, really cool way. So I, I, I love this emphasis that you're giving us here. I want to go over one more piece here. You also have talked about the Latinx health paradox and factors that can impact this paradox. Just find that for us and explain it.
2: Yes, sure. So another key construct to understand a phrase, so the Latino health paradox, it is an epidemiological paradox whereby Hispanic Latinos tend to have lower rates of mortality than non-Hispanic whites, despite lower average income and education. And that runs contrary to what we traditionally have known about minority health, like certain ethnic groups maybe have higher mortality. So that's not necessarily the case with Hispanic Latinos. That was Mm. in general, that's what the Hispanic paradox or the Latino health paradox referred to. Now, I want to say that that body of research is still out there, but now we're beginning to understand it in a more complex fashion. So Mm. some of those within group differences is what now researchers are paying attention to. So things that may affect it is, again, those subpopulation differences with Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, like who are we talking about? Also, in terms of immigration. So, first generations or those who are middle aged may be healthier than those who have migrated at a younger age as well. And also, gender differences. So, the life expectancy may be similar between Hispanic women and non Hispanic white women, but not among men, not among Hispanic or Latinx men. So, it's again, it's, uh, I think it's again appreciating those within group differences.
1: I think that's a real key piece. I think, I think for any group that comes to see you with different you know, cultural heritages and ethnicity and race, I think being able to be appreciative of not just stereotyping somebody because of their color or language, whatever it may be, but to understand that within that, there are some, there are some generalities for sure, some things that are specific, some of which you shared with us today. But then there are also the within group differences that make that person unique. And I think being interested enough to be curious about, hey, tell me what makes you unique, maybe in this area or this area, in ways that the person themselves may not have even explored, or maybe they just kind of see themselves in a generality too about, you know, well, I'm I'm, I'm this, so that must mean that I'm this, you know? And I, I don't think that's always true. So I think you're developing a different appreciation with the folks you work with. I also know that you work with folks in a mentorship and in a training capacity as well and those that want to kind of work in this area and i want to talk about how do you in that role as a mentor as a trainer supervisor how do you help them address developing more cultural competencies with those that they see
2: yes training and mentorship is is really important to me in fact we have a, a training mentorship program where I, I work at rush university medical center and so I do try to provide, and I articulate to mentees my own orientation. So I try to be a role model to them in terms of disclosing my own ethnic background, my own cultural upbringing, Mm -hmm. in hopes that that helps us to connect with each other. And what I explain to people is that I, I try my best to offer warm, empathic mentoring. Okay. So and I and I articulate that because I think it's important for people to to hear, okay, what are your value systems? The other thing that I do is we talk about Latino values and also just values in general. So when we have people that are coming into our team, we do talk about, well, what kind of value system are we gonna set here amongst our work together? Mm. And I find that a lot of us do appreciate the role of family. I don't just work with Latino individuals, but just like in general, these are some themes that kind of cut across. The other thing that I emphasize to them is mentorship is really important because you, I say that you really only need one outstanding mentor. However, um, I'm a big advocate for having more than one mentor mm-hmm. because different mentors can provide mentorship to you at various levels of training. I have my own mentors that I go to as well, and that's important to get the diverse perspectives and also In terms of mentoring, I I also strongly value vertical mentoring where there's Hmm. different people at at various stages of their training uh, levels that that you can kind of all benefit from each other. So, yeah, we try to have a a family oriented, I guess, style of mentorship and training, which is also try to have fun. The other thing I, I should say, Graham, that I do is when I'm doing mentorship and when there's a professional development thing that I'm talking about or career development. I specifically point that out because I feel that sometimes we don't know when professional development is occurring. We just think, oh, we're just learning. But I think it's important to say, oh, I'm, ta- I'm talking to you right now about career development. This is why this is going to be important for your career or professional development. This is a professional development piece. Just kind of articulating that. I found that my trainees find that that's that's help One it helps to cue for them. This is a pearl that I need to kind of carry with me and, and take on when I when I go forth.
1: And that kind of ripples over then into the effectiveness, I would imagine, of their being able to see the folks they see and to be effective in their work with them. I also like the idea when you're in, in a group mentoring that I would imagine you explore with those in the room, maybe from different you know cultures and backgrounds, what's unique about theirs. You know because it's it's about appreciating theirs and the values and roles and gender you know issues that relate to theirs as well so that they can come in and and i think that's just part of our ethics you know of having our own sense of ourselves as as well as it helps us manage you know counter transference issues you know that come up as well as transference issues you know come up in the therapy what's going to be projected on us so Lisa, we're kind of coming to a close in our show today and I, i would love as we wind down for our listeners to have kind of a takeaway from you around cultural competency. So leave us with a takeaway, would you?
2: Sure. So cultural competency is having the awareness, knowledge, and skills needed to work with diverse ethnic groups. And if if people just kind of take that to heart and understanding that it's their job to understand themselves as a cultural being and to be able to effectively work with individuals is, you know, a nice. really smart place to start in terms of their own their own work.
1: Themselves. Yeah, really nice. Really nice. I, I love that. Well, hey, as we do begin to wind down, I would love our listeners to have a chance to follow up, to learn more about your work with the Rush University Medical Center mm-hmm. and also about you just personally and also in your private practice. So give us some resources as we begin to close for today.
2: Sure. So for Rush University, I work in the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine. And so the website there would be www.rushu.rush.edu. And they can search on that, find all kinds of nice. pearls of wisdom. We also have a family medicine residency program that works largely with the Latinx population. So a wonderful training program there. For myself, they can find me on LinkedIn. I, I'm there. And my Twitter is at Dr. Lisa S. J. And then my clinical practice, which I will be starting up again soon, I have uh, some information about me on hawaiipsychology.org. You just look for, find a psychologist and and they can find me there.
1: Really good. Really good. Well, in closing, I had to mention at the beginning of our talk today about an award that you had received in 2008, but I also want to tell our listeners, in addition to the numerous grants and awards that Lisa has received, her work with the Latinx health community and just in that whole, this whole area, including a award that she received just this past October, October 2022. She received the Distinguished Professional Career Award from the National Latinx Psychological Association based on her research and her education and training, her mentorship work, her service, and her clinical practice with this population. So, Lisa, congratulations on that. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, allowing me to share my work. Appreciate it.
1: Great to have you here today. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Lisa and me today. It's always great to have you with us. I want to remind you that this episode today and its resources, along with our other episodes, can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on this show, and we we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We
0: appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.